most astonishing thing about the town was an old belfry that had a clock tower with seven faces. You could see the time from anywhere in the town of Swan Valley. But the faces persistently told different times. No question, something evil was abiding there. Hello, and welcome back to the Director's Wall, Season 2 Coppola cast. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm Brian Connolly, the other co-host. All right, and we are, for now, uh, wrapping up the career of Francis Ford Coppola. We've, we did it! <laughs> we finally, finally made it. It took us a long time, but yeah, we are Yeah, when here. did we start Coppola? Pre-COVID. Yeah. A few years pre-COVID, maybe. Twenty. 18, Holy maybe? Moses. <laughs> 2017, maybe? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, what a, what a journey. I, that was, uh, I didn't think we'd get here. Yeah. And yet he's still alive and still making movies, so this will not be the end, because of course there'll be... Um, Megalopolis. Megalopolis sometime in the, our lives. Yeah. So just like with Shyamalan, we'll jump back in whenever... Coppola makes another movie if if he does yeah. pass this one. So today's movie we are talking about Twixt. From yes, 2011. And we're uh, mixing things up with the drinks. We're gonna have a wine a little later, but but we're instead enjoying some jerky and whiskey, which is what Val Kilmer's uh, character has when he wants to write. <laughs> Twixt, his character is a writer. And there's a part where he's like settling down to finally write in his hotel room and he pulls out a bag of jerky and an Irish whiskey, which I don't have, so we had to settle for a scotch whiskey. Um, But uh, (laughs) that was one of the more, one of the many strange (laughs) details in this very strange movie. And so we'll talk about the wine when we have it later. And we will also be announcing. What season three is? We will not take as much of a break because I think we already take our own breaks by taking so long that we will say who season three is going to be about and hopefully first episode next month. Yeah. Uh, we also have a couple of dogs with us who are very interested in our snacks. So uh, <laughs> you may hear some jangling and some tapping of tails on the table. It's what you get when you have jerky on a podcast. Yeah. You might as well be a postman with a sausage link trying to jump over a fence. Yeah, yeah they're very interesting. Though they did both watch Twixt. They fell asleep. They didn't really like it, but they're just dogs. Really, though. So this is also our Shocktober episode. We timed perfectly accidentally. And I know, AJ, you're like me, where you celebrate... Strict Shocktober, is that right? You only watch Shocktober. I will only October? watch only watch Shocktober on my own. If uh, I'm okay. with uh, my wife or my kids, I'll watch whatever. But uh, yes, uh, on my own, all my viewing is horror movies, horror TV shows. I'm reading Stephen King's Christine. Ooh, this month. nice. Yeah, so this is perfect. This is. Coppola returning to horror for the first time since Bram Stoker's Dracula. And just like Bram Stoker's Dracula, it also kind of reminds you a little bit of his very first movie, his first official movie, Dementia 13. Uh, So he kind of had his roots in horror, his roots in Roger Corman type stuff. And this feels more of a return than even Bram Stoker, because Bram Stoker was a big, huge Hollywood production. This 
like Dementia 13, very, very, I wouldn't even say low budget, no budget <laughs> motion picture. And also like that movie, very dreamy, very surreal, and yeah. very much like in step with the last few movies, like this era of Coppola. It kind of feels like a student film or almost like a first film again. And I don't even say that in a bad way. It was just he's taking chances. He's getting weird. He doesn't seem to care about what one expects from the guy who made The Godfather. <laughs> and making a very strange, weird little movie that not a lot of people liked and not a lot of people have seen. Uh, yeah, so I guess it's my job to do the plot. And so just like with many other movies, there's two versions of this movie. We're just going to talk about the first one first, and then later on we'll go into the uh, ultimate cut, I believe is what it was. <laughs> ultimate cut is authentic. Cut. The authentic cut. The real cut. Uh, so he's, okay. Uh, all right, so Twixt. Um, this movie uh, opens on this little town, this little tiny town, and you hear a narrator talking. That narrator, Mr. Tom Waits, who... We've seen in a few couple of movies, such as One from the Heart and Bram Stoker's Dracula as the Great Renfield. Mm -hmm. So he tells this little story, and like you can already set up this is going to be like a ghosty story. It's already giving you kind of like mad Stephen King vibes. There's this little town. There was a mysterious murder in the past. Uh, there's a weird clock tower that has all the different faces of all the time that it could possibly be around the world. And it just kind of gives you this nice little, like, here's this little creepy town. And then in comes Hall Baltimore, played by the great Val Kilmer, doing his first couple of movies, shockingly. He was not, maybe he was too young to be an outsider, or maybe he didn't get the, or the being a rumble fish. But he comes in, and he is basically like a not quite as good or as famous Stephen King Dean Koontz, perhaps. <laughs> and he's in this small town promoting his book, and he just writes these horror books. The one he was promoting, I believe, is witch. It's like a witch-based yeah. sort of thing. And he's in this bookstore, which is also in a hardware store, and no one gives a shit about his book, and he can't sell anything. And already you realize this movie may be a comedy because Val Kilmer is cracking wise, and because it's clearly shot on video... It's a lot of like quick cuts of what my guess was a lot of Val Kilmer riffing and cutting down to the best bits. And you're going to see more of that as the movie goes on. He also has an intense ponytail going on. Intense ponytail. This is good. Ponytail Kilmer. But he's looking good. And he's great. I love him. <laughs> Bless his heart. Uh, and the one person who seems excited about him being there is Bruce Dern playing the sheriff. Now, the sheriff actually knows who this guy is. The sheriff, also a writer himself, very excited to share his ideas, which I'm sure all writers love to hear, is, I'm a writer too, you want to hear my ideas? <laughs> and, uh, but he's mostly excited to show Val Kilmer this body that they have at the morgue because there's a murder and it's really interesting. And so Val Kilmer, of course, is like, sure, why not? <laughs> why not? And so then you get to meet kind of this little cast of characters in this town. There's the one deputy who works with Bruce Dern. There's the mysterious dead body. There's a precocious kid who likes to hang out at the, uh, almost like the Ron Howard of uh, the Andy Griffith show that's this town likes to play board games and hang out with the deputy. Uh, and then there's the, I'm guessing like it's like a bar, pub, coffee shop sort of thing. 
And what wouldn't you know it? Father Guido Sarducci shows up again. Don Novello in like his tenth fucking Coppola movie. Like who who didn't who knew that that was his De Niro, right? <laughs> like he, I had no idea when we started this that we'd be seeing tons of Father Guido Sarducci. Yeah, that and I would I'd... actually learn his real name. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that's his real voice. He unless he just likes to talk in fake Italian voice. He goes, has a he talks like a kind of this all the time, you know. Yeah, and he just well because he starts talking, he's in the background, and your ear just knows. Even it's like wait, your, there even he before is. Your brain, <laughs> your brain has translated the signal that that's the voice of Don Novello. Your ear just knows. <laughs> and so there's not only this mysterious murder of this young woman, but there's also just weird things that go on that may or may not be dreams. And it's, they start to reveal themselves to maybe be dreams or maybe not be dreams. And it kind of, this version blends those, the reality and unreality kind of goes together. In a way, it makes it feel a lot like, I feel like a lot of the other Coppola stuff where like the dream is the reality. Like one from the heart, Rumblefish. Like when he gets into his not uh, big movie, he likes to put these kind of, he likes to play with sort of dreams and dream logic. And so in this possible dream... There's this young blonde girl named V, played by Elle Fanning, fresh off of just being in a Sofia Coppola movie. I believe it was somewhere. Somewhere, yeah. So clearly their Coppolas are like, oh, well, can I use your actor? Do you like that? And um, she's in this as V. She's called V V for Vampira. Is that right? They the, call her Vampira. Because yeah. she wears, because her teeth are kind of messed up and she wears this sort of braces and it makes her kind of look like she has fangs. And she dresses kind of gothy. And it's implied that maybe, I don't know, she's a part of this other group across the lake that Bruce Dern's sheriff does not care for. Gothy kind of punk kids who just like do their own little private Bernie Man where they have like a bonfire and so they have these little trailers and they just hang out there and live on the land. But they're led by this guy named Flamenco, played by Alden Ehrenreich from Tetra, yeah. who I totally forgot I think when I saw this movie, I didn't know who he was. This must have been the first thing I saw him in. Me too. And uh, in a, a role that kind of hides that he is Alden Ehrenreich because he's in makeup. He's in sort of a, uh, you know, gothy sort of vampire sort of makeup. He yeah, he's got like white, white face makeup and then like black uh, tears made up on around his eyes. And it's revealed that something really bad happened in the schoolhouse. That there was children were murdered or something bad. Bad vibes. Their bodies buried under it. Still there, according to the lady who runs the place. Like, yep, down in that basement. Kill all these kids. Then, Edgar Allan Poe shows up. Because <laughs> why, why not? In real life, in a dream. Probably a dream. Played by Ben Chaplin. Whom I haven't thought of in forever. And plays a pretty good Poe. And so Poe... I guess vacations in this town, even though this feels far, far away from Baltimore, which is where he's from. But, you know, Val Kilmer's name in this movie is Baltimore, so I'm sure there's a connection. And Poe's just there to kind of hang out and talk to Val Kilmer about writing and about his life and his problems. And then it's revealed that a lot of this is a dream. And Val Kilmer's like, but the, but a lot of it is real about the history. So he, he tells Bruce Dern... All right, let's write this book. Let's write a book about this town. Let's do it. But I need to like really zock myself out and get some more of these dreams and get these ideas. So, so Bruce Dern brings a bunch of pills and he gets zonked out and has more dreams where more is revealed about this, these, this mass murder. More is revealed about Edgar Allan Poe. And at the same time, there's still the mystery of, well, who killed this girl 
in the non-dream world. It's laying in the sheriff's station. And then you get a fun little bit with Joanne Whaley, Val Kilmer's actual ex-wife, kind of being his estranged wife that threatens to burn his Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass original pressing over Zoom or whatever. Because she doesn't like that he's not around anymore. And, and, and then it's implied that something really tragic happened in their family, which will be revealed later. Then also David Paymer, the great David Paymer, plays the agent manager of Val Kilmer, and he's really excited that Val Kilmer's got this crazy idea about this murder in this town and the history, but he wants a big down payment just to make his wife happy. And uh, yeah, then the movie kind of reveals itself to then be very personal and actually about Coppola's son dying in a boat accident, which we talked about in our um, Gardens, of Gardens of Stone episode. And the movie actually recreates the death, which is really shocking that it shows exactly how it happened um, to, to great detail. And uh, so you, it's like this kind of fun, crazy movie turns out being one of his most personal films, which is very interesting. And of course, it's tied in with Val Kilmer having lost his daughter in this, his character in this movie. And it's about that. So they changed the gender, but it's definitely clearly about... Um, his son. What was his son's name again? Gio. Gio Coppola, yes. So it kind of ends up being this, in my opinion, a very powerful movie by the end. It starts fun and ends up being this powerful thing. So that is Twixt, the first version. So yeah, yeah. what about what, what about this movie? Uh, Have you seen this before? I had. I saw it when we first got it at Vulcan Video. I watched it. I wrote a review of it for my blog. I went back and read that review and I thought it was okay. Uh, I read it and I'm like, oh, this asshole. <laughs> because uh, watching Twix this time, I loved it. Yeah, same. <laughs> it's really good. It's really good. I think it's uh, I think it's a really great horror movie. It's not exactly scary, but it's creepy. It's very atmospheric. Uh, it's not very it's not very violent or bloody so you could watch it with someone that uh, you know doesn't typically like horror movies it's fun it has like a good lively pace to it and good lively characters it's interesting the whole like is it a dream or is it reality thing is not too confusing no and uh, it's it's got a really a really nice uh, style to it. I agree. I think just like with Tetro, he really kind of knows how to embrace the new technology, the technology of the time. This was 2012, 2011, 2011, and so he does sort of you know like stuff that stylistically you would say kind of looks a lot like Sin City, that kind of like heightened black and white, but with little touches of color, which. I mean, granted, he did long before uh, Sin City and Rumblefish, but with like actual crazy f film process. But this one is digital. Uh, but it looks great. I really love those scenes uh, where the, all the dream sequences have this dreamy, spooky quality. The way the colors are kind of look all like moonlight, and it um, there's like a sparkle to it. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. This movie's not scary, but it's more like a gothic thing. It's got that kind of I don't know. It has that. It feels like Halloween. It feels like you're being told a ghost story, or you're, the characters are living in a ghost story. And it's not about gore. And it's not about jump scares. It's more about just sort of like this sad story of these deaths 
and the creepy kind of like ghosts and spirits that kind of linger afterwards. Really good. And uh, I guess based on an actual dream the Coppola had, what, I, what little I could find about the making of was that he had a dream where he was hanging out with Poe, woke up and was like, oh shit, how's that dream in? I got, I got to get back to that dream and he couldn't get back to it. But he wrote this movie instead, and somehow that's tied in with his uh, feelings about his son's death. I don't know what if that was part of the dream. He didn't say. In the well, making of uh, Twixt the documentary, a film by Gia Coppola. Who is Gio's daughter, yes. correct? Yes. She had just finished uh, college, not sure what she wanted to do, so she tagged along with Grandpa on his new movie and made the behind-the-scenes documentary of it. And in that, you you hear there's part of the uh, the recording that Coppola made after he woke up and he had this dream. He was in Istanbul, and um, they have the uh, big uh, I forget exactly what the proper term for him is, but the big towers with the speakers that announce the call to prayer. And he was in the middle of having this dream. Um, this is a dream that I just had. Uh, I'm in Istanbul, and I. It begins, I met a girl, she was, uh... Hi. She was cute, and she was attractive, but she wasn't really... There was something about her that was a little off-putting, I don't know what it was. Tell me. But uh, maybe it was her teeth, they were crooked. And, um, she, uh, she was teasing me. She kept telling me she was a, she told me she was a vampire. They call me Vampira because of these teeth. But you can call me V. Made it into a movie. <laughs> and a lot of this movie is figuring out, is Hall Baltimore trying to figure out how it ends. What's the ending? How does it end? And Poe, like, at one point warns him about, like, the ending. You know, if you go any further, this ending will be your own or something like that that's... Wonderfully delivered by Ben Chaplin as Edgar Allan Poe. You made a very good Edgar Allan Poe. I agree, yeah. Uh, we can only wonder what it would be like when Sylvester Stallone wanted to play Edgar Allan Poe in a movie. You know, what that would have been like. <laughs> we have Ben Chaplin instead. Uh, yeah, and I, I was surprised at how much I really liked this movie. Because I remember when I first saw it, I liked it because I thought it was strange. But watching it in, con in the context of sort of like all these other movies that we've gone through... It really is good. It's like way better than I think people give it credit for. I think, well, I think most people never even gave it a shot or a chance, um, which is too bad. Um, but this is why we're doing this show. This is why we're doing this episode to so let people know about these great things. And it is, it is a fun mix, I think, of because like what was so great about Tetro is it was shot on video, but it was done so it was shot so beautifully and felt very cinematic. And what I didn't care for about Youth Without Youth was that it, a lot of it did not look so good and it looked kind of cheap. And I think what this movie does is kind of blend both to a really good effect. I think that it, having this sort of dream world and real world works with the style of like in the real world, you have this kind of clearly shot on video. It's just sort of, it feels more intimate, but it feels like it's... Um, you know, a low-budget movie, you have, like I said, a lot of these jump cuts of Val Kilmer doing comedy, <laughs> doing bits, or what I can only imagine is Bruce Dern just improvising or something. There's a really great part where 
Val Kilmer's in the hotel room, and it's just him doing a bunch of impressions, almost like you'd mm-hmm. seen an Ernest movie, when it's just quick cuts of all these characters. And you get to see him do a great James Mason, which yeah, is really knew? good. Then he does like this basketball player voice, which then turns into like a gay voice, which he acknowledges. He's like, I'm a basketball player now. I'm a gay basketball player. And then the one that's really shocking is he does Brando in Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. And so you have... This uh, him doing sort of the straight edge razor line from Apocalypse Now in a movie by Coppola, and clearly Coppola liked this because I think other directors would not like that and be like, "This is too weird to do," um, you know, a riff on my own work. But it, it keeps it in. It's pretty funny, especially knowing that Kilmer was in the Island of Doctor Moreau, hung out and pissed off Brando. So. He had a direct line to get a good impersonation of him. It's pretty good. But then you have that, the contrast with the, the, the dream scenes that are not quick cuts, that are slow. The movie kind of slows down and it kind of gets, gets really, like I said, the colors change. And it's really beautiful. And I think it's a really good usage of digital kind of effects and photography. The scenes, they're, they're black and white, for lack of a better term, but it's more like the color has been drained from them it's like well black and white's really gray but this feels it looks gray and then there'll be like a red carpet is still there or like fire is still in color yeah really really good very cool yes and i guess he shot like the other two movies in abundance of footage that he shot a lot and his plan was to live edit it in front of an audience of people uh, which never happened, but his idea was that the, the technology is such now that you, he'd have all the rough footage in front of him, and he'd be in the theater watching Twixt, and he would pick the takes and almost like a choose-your-own-adventure build this movie to the end. And that huh. was the plan, which he then abandoned because I think he realized that that's crazy. <laughs> it's yeah. a crazy idea. I guess he'd be like a DJ where he'd be like the scene before with headphones be like, yeah, that take, yeah, that take, let's do it. And then put it in, and maybe there'd be a weird delay, or maybe you'd seamlessly, seamlessly uh, fade it in and out. I don't know, but that would have been an, it was an interesting idea that did not work out um, for whatever reason that I could not find. And I feel the Poe connection reminds me a lot of Roger Corman, which is where you know Coppola got a start. But like many great filmmakers, like Bogdanovich and Scorsese, started out making stuff for Coppola or for Corman. And so that Poe connection feels to me like an homage to his mentor, Roger Corman, who made many great adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe stories starring they, Vincent those Price. Are, and, those are very good. Yeah. I mean, the good ones are good. There's some bad ones. <laughs> What's your of, favorite? The Mask of the Red. That Dead. one's so good. It's so good. Yeah, that's the f- that's my favorite of those. It's uh, it's amazing. They feel like real movies. Like Roger Corman, you think, you know, maybe Rubber Monster in the, the desert, but like... Those movies look amazing. Those yeah, like, movies look he would like make, a Hammer film. He know? would make those movies, the rubber suits in the deserts or um, Hellcats parading down the street or whatever, uh, you know, fodder for Mystery Science Theater. But then he'd also make some really good movies too. <laughs> yeah, those, those poor movies feel like, those are like real movies. Like I said, they remind me of like, they, they're the closest an American film has gone to a Hammer film. With like these amazing sets and these great colors, and it's like beautiful widescreen and these great actors, yeah. and it's like you're watching Shakespeare, but it's Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, this is almost like uh, Twixt is like the digital um, 
I'm going to use a lot of words here. The digital analog to uh, <laughs> to those Poe stories. Because in the Roger Corman, Vincent Price, Poe movies, the sets, they look really good. They also like really look like sets, you know? And that's fine because that is part of the atmosphere. Yeah. Right? This is a story you're being told. And here... In the dream sequences, there's a lot that looks unnatural, that looks fake. There's a, a flashback dream sequence where uh, Alden Ehrenreich's character is on a motorcycle, and it's obvious that like the motorcycle itself is physically still, <laughs> and just the background is moving. And yeah, it looks fake. But it looks great too. It looks great, very yeah, atmospheric. Like the the way the motorcycle moves, like there's a chase sequence, and it's clearly like this weird digital jumping around thing. That if it was in any other movie, if it was like Triple X Two or something, I'd be like, "What? This is terrible!" Or some mid aughts Nicolas Cage action movie with just some CG bullshit. But because it's all in this weird dream world, you ex- you accept whatever. Like it's like, oh yeah, that looks weird, but this is a dream. So like you know, it doesn't have to look like a real motorcycle. And I feel he really pushes those elements. I think he's smart in knowing that, like, okay, this is digital. Okay, we have a low budget. But because it's a dream, you can get away with this kind of lower budget version of effects, just like how Roger Corman was smart with it. And you just accept it. You don't, it doesn't take you out of the movie at all. Like, because if it, if it looked that way in the real world of the movie, it would take you out. But because it's in this weird black and white with, like, this Alden Ehrenreich vampire type guy and, like... And Edgar Allan Poe's running around like it's okay if it looks very strange and not real. I'm a really big Edgar Allan Poe fan, as many, many people are. So I liked all the references to Poe. Uh, of course, the dreams he has of Edgar Allan Poe coming to help you with your writing <laughs> are just like, you know, fantasies. Well, you are Edgar Allan Poe, so if you... Uh, how can I help? Well, I don't have an ending. Did you know that Dickens once corresponded with me concerning the technique of writing the ending first and working backwards? What is your need, Belay? 40, 50 lines um, per page, 200-page um, minimum. The province? Beauty. The tone? Melancholy. These points being settled, shall we consider a refrain? I like it. Yes, the, 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 the bell tower has been coming to me. A refrain must be brief. In my own work, my most famous, this led me at once to a single word as the best refrain. Nevermore. Help me write my horror book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so his name is Hall Baltimore. Poe is from Baltimore. That was his uh, his place. The daughter character who died in a boat accident is named uh, Vic. Is named Vicky, but the uh, or Victoria, but the L. Fanning character V for Vampira, but her real name is Virginia, which is the name of Edgar Allan Poe's wife and cousin. It was a different time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Her character, we've already 
giving away the plot, but spoilers, spoilers, we find that her character gets walled in. Another Poe reference. Let's see, he's a Hall Baltimore's an alcoholic writer, much like Poe. He's obsessed with a dead beloved. Mm-hmm. This is basically a detective story. Edgar Allan Poe invented the detective story. What was the first one? Was it the uh, Murders in the Room War? Was that the first detective story? Yeah. That's a great story. And the writer who's always needing more money, the way that Poe always needed more money. And Poe died by eating too much jerky and whiskey. Just like, don't kill So that's what did him. I also want to say we're eating candy Twix because I was like, Twix, Twix. It's Halloween. It makes sense. Why not? Couple was a fool to not make a deal and tie it in some product placement <laughs> of them eating Twix. Uh, they make also peanut butter Twix. I'm not as crazy about those as I am the regular. Oh, okay. Have you ever peanut butter? I don't think I've had those. Oh, they're fine. I mean, I like chocolate peanut butter the most, but it, when you eat it, you're just like, why am I not just eating a peanut butter cup? A Reese's is my favorite. Or, yeah, candy. Reese's peanut butter cup is the best. And I learned recently that... Reese's Pieces are just peanut butter. It's not chocolate. In my mind, it was always like the chocolate shell. Huh. It was just a candy shell over peanut butter. That's strange. Do you ever think it was chocolate? I always thought it yeah, was chocolate. Yeah, I thought there was something in there. But, you know, I know E.T. loves them. That's all I know. <laughs> Bell Kilmer's good in this. Mm-hmm. He's good. Bruce Dern as Bobby LaGrange, the demented sheriff who ends up being the killer is really good he's like very uh loud (laughs) and a bit like just a bit over the top but that's the character he keeps addressing himself in the third person (laughs) and i want to say is this before or after nebraska this was sort of like this is part of his i feel like this is sort of the beginning of him being in things again you're like oh yeah bruce dern yeah, because like soon after this, you had um, his little bit in Django Unchained, and then you have him in Nebraska, and then he's in The Hateful Eight, and he's just like in, you know, real movies again, which is fun, because he's so good. He's always been so good. Love him in The Burbs. That's my favorite. Uh, older Bruce Dern as like the crazy, war-obsessed uh, guy in the cul-de-sac. Another great Shocktober movie. Love it. One of my favorites. <laughs> Elle Fanning is... She's good in this, and this is her, like, kind of moving out of little kid roles. She was, you know, the the daughter in Sophia's Somewhere. And then right before this, she was in Super 8. Oh, yeah. Where it's like teen, it's like kids, but they're, they're teens and kind of dealing with more uh, mature coming of age type, type stuff. And then there's this, where she, and then this, uh horror movie by Francis Ford Coppola where she's playing the ghost of a, of a dead girl. And she shows up later in Sophia's The Beguiled remake or adaptation. So clearly this family likes her and wants to keep her in, in movies and yeah. things. So Val Kilmer's wife is played by Val Kilmer's wife, Joanne <laughs> Whaley. Mm-hmm. They have good chemistry together. Not uh, not a big surprise. Uh, but they are their marriage is... On the rocks, I guess you could say. Their scenes together, which are all over Skype or FaceTime, whatever was around then, yeah, are very good. It feels like they're there riffing off of each other. 
The same thing with Kilmer scenes with David Paymer, also on uh, video chat. These actors, they just play really well in, in, in these split screen video calls. And we've seen that a lot more recently because of the pandemic. We were all on Zoom and then like, hey, let's throw this in movies now that people understand what it is. And it doesn't always work. You know, or it feels stilted. It feels like people are acting off someone that's not in the room. But this, it's there's such a, there's such a lively dynamic, and these people are so like engaged mm -hmm. that it feels like they're in the same room, maybe with just a fake line <laughs> set between them. But they're definitely in two different spaces. There's a great part when Kilmer's talking to Paymer, and Paymer keeps saying how much money is, and Kilmer just talks over him with a higher number as if he didn't hear. <laughs> the lower number's like, yeah, yeah, 10 grand, yeah, 10 grand. And Paymer's like, and I'll give you three grand. He's like, 10 grand, thank you, yes. <laughs> I love David Paymer. I'm glad to see him in this movie. Me too. It's the only couple of movie he's been in. Uh, I, I feel like he's one of the best character actors, all, always great in anything he's ever in. Oscar-nominated actor David Paymer. Joanne Whaley, Vulcan customer. Oh, she she had an account at Vulcan Video. I don't know what she was in town for, but you can look up her account and see what she rented, which I don't remember what she rented. Maybe that's why her name is familiar to me. <laughs> also, because she's an actress. But Willow, she's in Willow, right? Mm. That's the other movie they're both in together. Maybe that's how they met. Yeah, those scenes like, and like I'm trying to think of like before 2011, were what were other over video scenes like that? And what what movies had that? Like. Um, I'm trying to think of like the technology. Like that. I didn't use it back then because it was kind of new-ish. I know Forgetting like, Sarah Marshall had scenes like that. Okay. I think that was like maybe 08 or 09. I think it was before Twixt. I can look that up to be sure. Again, Coppola embracing modern technology. He loves... I wonder if he's one of those guys who just like when you go to his house, there's just like gadgets everywhere. It's like he just loved getting new cameras and new things <laughs> and new ways of uh, entertaining people, new ways of interacting with people. Yeah, forgetting Sarah Marshall was 08, and that's where I saw, where I remember seeing video calls. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Coppola likes to tinker with stuff. <laughs> um, Bruce Stern shows Val Kilmer at one point. Wait. A like electric chair for vampires. <laughs> Is that what he calls it? Yeah, it's, but it's like a weird contraption where it's like a giant stake gets thrown down and through the chest, basically. Yeah, and Val Kilmer. He describes it in like in in detail, and Val Kilmer says, "I wonder what that would look like." And then Bruce Dern pulls it out, and he has like a Barbie doll in the chair, <laughs> and like a big uh, uh, stake comes from behind. The sense of humor in this movie is very strange. Like the tone itself, I think maybe that was why it was off-putting for some people, is it's not quite a horror movie, it's not quite a comedy, it's it's betwixt both genres, <laughs> maybe intentional. You talked about how Val Kilmer rep does an impression of Brando as Kurtz, so it's <laughs> Coppola making a reference to himself also, and then the very personal reference of using the actual uh, events of of Gio's death. And there's also Alden Ehrenreich as Flamingo. When we meet him, he is reciting Baudelaire in French, which is what the French people at the plantation 
the uh, head of that family has his son reciting Baudelaire, which he says, you may think is cruel to make a child read Baudelaire, but the world is cruel. <laughs> Interesting that Apocalypse Now is the one that's getting referenced yeah. in this. And I also thought of it too when seeing the shot of them on the other side of the lake with their fire and dancing. It just felt kind of like... And that's another movie where it feels very much like a dream, where it's like the more he goes up the river, the more it's like, what is real? Like, is this just all insanity? And so I think that, uh, I mean, in a way, Apocalypse Now kind of feels a little bit like a horror movie yeah. also. And a dream. So this movie, not loved critically when it came out. No Oscars for us for our final couple episode. I'm sorry, AJ. But classic French. They loved it. Made the top ten on the, uh, the Cahiers du Cinema um, <laughs> list. Uh, number three, best film of the year, according to the French critics, yeah. which is crazy. And I think that's around... Tetro also made that list. And I think it was like four or five on the list. So this is even higher. But this year, a lot of things I've never heard of, and a few that I have. So number 10, Keep the Lights On by Ira Sachs. Don't know what that is. I'm familiar with Ira um, Sachs and some of his movies, but I haven't heard of this one. Two movies tied for number eight, so there's no number nine. Taboo by Miguel Gomez, or Gomez, and Faust by Alexander Sukharov. Ah, the Russian art himself. The, the Russian art guy. And then number seven, this is a good one, Go-Go Tales by Abel Ferreira, which is a really crazy movie. I mean, they all are, by Ferreira. Uh, never released in America, but number seven. And then you skip to the three movies tied for fourth place. Another... Abel Ferrer movie called <laughs> 444. It's in French. Dernier jour sous terre. The last day on earth. Oh, is that the one with Willem Dafoe? He made that yeah. the same year as Go Go Tales? Oh, that's a pretty good movie. I didn't know that it was originally a French title. All right. Good job, Abel Ferrer. Number two. And then uh, In Another Country by Hong Sang Su. And Take Shelter by Jeff Nichols, which I've seen. And then you have Twixt as number three. Can you guess what the first two are? Do you remember 2012 well in the art world, like the non-Oscar world? None of these are Oscar movies. I, this is um, art world stuff. I like to think that I would. However, I did look this up before, so I do know the answer <laughs> to them. All right. They are both very, yeah, twenty, very 2012 art movies. When you say it, it's no surprise. Yeah, number two is Cosmopolis by David Cronenberg, which is a really crazy hard to wrap your mind around movie like i remember my first viewing of it i really couldn't make head or tails of it i did like it but i couldn't tell you what it was about <laughs> and then number one is holy motors which was my favorite movie of 2012 which by leos carex that movie's great i agree that's number one but having twix is number three over these other movies it means that they like i feel i feel like they're the only ones classic french in on what Coppola is trying to do, like liking Tetra so much and Twixt, when all the critics in America just seem kind of baffled and dismissive, they were like, no, no, this is interesting. Uh, and I mentioned this last time when, uh, when we talked about Kai du Cinema and the Tetra episode. They are known for being very mean, very tough. <laughs> right, very tough. If they like a movie, it's like a big deal because they hate so much. And when they don't like a movie... <laughs> They hate it. Well, good good on you. I wonder if that made Coppola happy to be like, well, it didn't make money and yeah. no one in America liked it. But 
does hard to please. French yeah, this critics movie loved it. Has uh, I I didn't write them down because you know Rotten Tomatoes is whatever, but the scores on it are bafflingly low. You know, it was like eighteen percent or something on Rotten Tomatoes, and the reviews for it are mostly negative like either harsh or negative and there's a couple of uh, positive ones in there but those are very few this movie apparently didn't even get a north american theatrical release it played only in festivals like it opened at the toronto film festival i think uh release date september 4th in toronto that's yeah. around the time when they have the festival and then it played other festivals and then Came out in, on a DVD in America. It played in theaters in Europe. Well, it feels more like a European sort of movie. It has that kind of dreamy gothic thing. The logic, it's not quite the linear movie that people are used to here. Nor is it like the hip, cool indie movie. And it's funny, like so many people that I've mentioned, oh, we're doing Twitch, are like, oh, that movie's terrible. And I'm like, really? That movie's really interesting. Like, what other movie is like this? It's such a weird... Like, wouldn't it be cool if someday Robert Rodriguez took the technology that he makes his little movies with and makes something actually per like kind of personal? Like, I guess there was that horror movie made about like people doing the test thing that he did to make the money for El Mariachi. But like this, like again, just like the last few movies, this is what Coppola said he always wanted to do and always wished that his peers did. Where you just take a little bit of your own. I think this is wine money, is my guess, and. Make the movie you want to make without studio interference and make, you know, why not adapt some dream you had into a movie? Like, who else is doing that? Not a lot of people. And to just go off and make this movie that, yeah, isn't like other things. Maybe it doesn't fully work. But at the same time, you're comparing it to the wrong movies. Like, don't compare this to other regular movies of the time. Don't even compare it to other couple of movies. Like, it's its own strange, like, he's still, he's in his rain people world here he's doing experimental feature films uh his own way which makes it all the more baffling <laughs> when <laughs> we thought we were done and i'm like aj twixt watch let's do it this was like a month ago we, yes we and were we were ready we were to ready to go and then i was like oh wait coppola just did a director's cut of this movie <laughs> less than a year ago like a few months ago called Betwixt Now and Sunrise, the... What? Colon, The Authentic Cut. The Authentic Cut. And before we go into my issues with, with this, let's, let's do a little review of the movie. So let's just make a note. I love Twixt. I love it. I would dare say one of my top ten Coppola for me. Uh, it might, be, I, it might be for me when we make our a list. A great film. All right, so this director's cut, um, would you like to do the plot of the director's cut? Because it is different, a little bit. Yeah. To describe how it's different story-wise. So, uh, like the first 30 minutes are pretty much the same, I think. I, I watched Twixt, then I watched Bitwixt, or uh, as you called it once, Retwixt, which I thought should have <laughs> I thought it was called Retwix. I That's think what that it should have been called. Sprite Retwix. Or every or every Coppola re-edit should just be Redux. <laughs> yeah, Twix. Everything Redux. Redux. <laughs> I think like maybe the score was different because I don't remember there being a lot of like marimba style music under it. I didn't have time to go back and then rewatch Twix <laughs> to for a formal comparison. 
But uh, at a certain point, yeah, it's obvious that stuff has been removed and moved around. This is eight minutes shorter. Mm-hmm. And no new footage. I and the original movie is already pretty short. Like Twixt is like 86 minutes or something. So this yeah. is like 70 something minutes. Yeah. The scene at the lake with the, the goth kids is cut down significantly. Yeah. Uh, almost all of Alden Ehrenreich's dialogue is removed. Him disappearing to escape is still in there, which is, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the dream sequences. Poe reveals the history of the murder mystery into uh, with Elle Fanning and the other twelve girls that are cared for by this uh, by this priest, or I assume he was a priest because he's mostly dressed yeah, in he's black. A, he's a priest, yeah. Played by Anthony Fusco, and then he uh, murders all of them. <laughs> and uh, Poe like tells him part of the story, and then another dream he tells him the conclusion. And that's where there's this crazy uh, climax of like El Fanning running away and jumping on Alden Ehrenreich's motorcycle. And they think they get away and then the priest finds her and walls her up. And he kind of like goes insane and is like, she's screaming and then he screams back in her face. And those screams are cut. Like she still gets walled up, but like I remember the priest screaming back at her and he doesn't do that in Betwixt. And then, most jarringly of all, is that there's no ending to this movie. It just ends. Uh, the, so in the ending, after it ends with a Poe dream sequence, but so it's, it's pretty obvious, uh, whether you figure it out from scene one or not, that Bruce Dern is the killer of this movie. Uh, and then he goes over to Hall Baltimore's hotel room. He goes crazy and you're like well yeah he's definitely the killer now uh, he hits him over the head with uh, something and then uh, Baltimore goes into the final dream sequence where he sees the death of his uh, of his daughter and and then he wakes up from that he goes to the police station and finds that the deputy has been murdered this is the original you're yeah talking the original about. one yeah. deputy has been murdered Bruce Stern has hung himself and he goes, and he's finally going to look at the body with the stake in it, which he's, like, refused to do up to this point. And he pulls back the sheet, and at first it's his daughter, and then he pulls the stake out, and there's lots of blood squirting everywhere, <laughs> like Dracula. Yeah. Another reference. And then it's Elle Fanning, and she gets up, and she's really a vampire, and her braces snap off her mm-hmm. teeth, and she has fangs, and she attacks him, and he's wrestling with her on the floor. And then cut to uh, <laughs> Val Kilmer's in David Paymer's office. David Paymer closes a manuscript and is like, I love it. <laughs> it's such a He's good like, this ending. is what I'm talking about. It's such a good end. He says, uh, Hall Baltimore, master of witches, no more. And Val Kilmer says, nevermore. <laughs> and then the movie ends. A great ending. I love I that ending. It. So It's so funny. In Betwixt, they're in the hotel room. Uh, Val Kilmer and Bruce Stern. Bruce Stern hits him over the head with uh, something. He goes into another dream sequence with Poe. He sees the death of his daughter. It's an intense scene. And then Poe says something very uh, poetic and very Poe-like to him. And then the movie ends. <laughs> There's no resolution about the no. uh, the 
the like real life in quotes uh, storyline. It just ends there in the dream. Yeah, it's weird. I feel like the way the first movie ends, you could read it as like maybe all that movie was the story until the end. Like the everything that we saw was this book. And then it ends with him to, like basically clinking champagne with David Paymer, be like, we did it. <laughs> I think it's really funny. Because the part two of when he pulls a stay out in the blood of her vampire, that is not shot like the dream. That's in the real world. And so In full color. In yeah. full color. So you wonder like, okay, is this really happening or is the whole thing a book? But then the betwixt, retwixt, the ending, it just kinda ends in a dream. And it could be thought of as like that Val Kilmer dies, maybe. He gets killed by Bruce Dern. And this is like his dream and he's kind of getting reacquainted with his daughter in a way. And then the movie's over as he goes to heaven mm-hmm. or into his mind or whatever. That's kind of how it feels to me. Yeah. And the director's cut, it's the thing that I noticed to me was that it looks a lot better. That they must have put it through some better... You know, ten years later, technology to kind of gloss it over and like it did. The shots that looked like they're shot on video did not this time around. Maybe because the version I saw originally was on DVD and this one was on Blu-ray, and the Blu-ray looks better. But it was that. It seemed to move faster. It seemed to cut. Even the scenes that existed seemed to be slightly shortened, including you no longer have Velcomer's line about the gay basketball player. He's just a basketball player. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That joke is so. I don't know. Couple was like this. Doing a gay voice joke is not cool in 2023. You're going to take it out. Or it was too long. I don't know. And am I right? I didn't remember. Maybe I just remember. But I swear there's some line readings that are different. Like and so, like little bits. Like there's a part where Don Novello talks about Hitler inventing the time. Uh, Daylight savings time. Is that in the original? Uh, and I just forgot. Because like, I just only remembered it in this version of him being like, you know, Daylight savings time was invented by Adolf Hitler. I do actually a pretty good impersonation. Yeah. I think, yeah. but uh, but I, I don't remember that in the original. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, is that in the original? I'm pretty sure it is. Is it? I don't remember that. But then the whole movie kind of leans more into this version. The Beatrix version is more the dream, and more the dream kind of clumped together in these bigger pieces, where it kind of feels like the bulk of the movie once you're at almost the halfway point, and less of the real world is in there. So it kind of is more. Just the dream. The movie is just kind of this dream, and you don't get the reveal of Bruce Dern being the killer. You get less of of Val Kilmer in this town, and it is more just like the weird dreamy thing. And I feel it's less obvious in this version what is the dream and what's not because there's so much and it's such in a big and the reveal of what happens in the school with the kids and the reveal of what happened to Val Kilmer's daughter is all safe for the end, like almost like a twist. Like yeah. it's almost like a big reveal of like and this, which is sort of my main, my one of the two beefs I have with this version is that I really like in the original that there isn't too much of a mystery that you kind of you get a little bit of a mystery but you understand that something bad happened and you're slowly getting all the information till the end and you already know that Val Kilmer has lost somebody and then like the end of the, it builds emotionally to the end scene and I feel here. It's revealed kind of out of... If you hadn't seen the original, I don't know if it would be as impactful in this version. Because I found it very impactful in the, in the original. In this one, it feels sort of like a... 
a reveal at the end of like, and your daughter died because of this. And you're like, oh, okay, there wasn't as much allusions to that in this. Or because the movie moves faster, it doesn't quite have the... Like the in and outs of Dreamworld and Reworld in the original is lost here. So then the CGI does kind of bother me in this one because it doesn't have that nice floaty feel. This is like these big chunks of, of dream. And then the abrupt ending... It just feels too abrupt where I'm just like, wait, what? <laughs> and, and maybe if I'd seen this first, I wouldn't think that. But it really does feel like there's so much stuff hanging that is left. <laughs> like, you don't, like maybe you don't need the silly David Paymer being like, we're rich, we did it, ending, even though I love it. But it is weird to kind of be like, yeah, Bill Comer like, gets hit on the head and then you don't get a – like, you kind of miss out on a resolution. Yeah. So it's more this version, the Betwixt version is more arty and more experimental in that it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, and, that ver- that ending that bothered me as well, in part because I never took that the ending of Twixt of David Paymer finishing the book that that meant the whole thing was just the book, you know, like it was all a dream, which is like the worst thing you could ever do in a movie. (laughs) I mean, you know, not, I'm not saying it's not a valid uh, uh, criticism, but I, yeah, I didn't take that to mean that the whole thing was, uh, was all uh, something Val Kilmer made up. And it's like, well, it's like half and half or like this happened and then he just wrote it all down Mm -hmm. and that's the book. So there's that. And this ends, yeah, in the dream with Kilmer's character confronting his past demons. Uh, he didn't know that his daughter was going to go boating on speedboats. He thought there was going to be like little rowboats. And I guess he was drinking a lot the night before. Yeah, was he, like was, he was drinking. the next day. Yeah, he was, he was drinking. He was with another woman. And he didn't set the uh, alarm clock for the right time. And, you know, so he confronts that. And it's a very, I mean, well done, uh, well done emotional scene. And Poe says to him, our work must be the grave that we pre- prepare for its lovely tenant. tenant. And then the movie ends. And then like a wide <laughs> shot of them in like a gothic you yeah. know, valley. And then the movie ends and it's like, yeah, and it doesn't what? have the like cool it? song because the, f- the original ends with this great song called Nosferatu, sung by Val Kilmer, a song he wrote, I think, with Coppola. And it sounds sort of like them doing like a Bauhaus, gothy sort of thing, kind of almost, yeah, like almost even like a little bit of Joy Division or something there. And it's great. Nosferatu, Nosferatu. In this version, you only hear it when they're at, you know, the, the vampires across the lake and then the end credits just have like a regular song. And I feel the humor's lacking in this version. This version's harder to follow. This version is more boring, even though it's shorter. To me, it felt very much like the Godfather 3 remake, whatever, the... Coda. Coda, where it just felt like, why? Why does why this exist? What is, is it just... Is, are these all the leftover quarantine projects from Coppola? <laughs> He's had two years to be like, I don't know, let's re-edit the Cotton Club, and let's re-edit the... And it just it just feels and the, the the main beef I have with this the main problem is it's like it's not like the movie was made for it's not like Blade Runner where it's like I made this movie and the studio made me change all these things 
So they, you, you never, it's not touchy evil. It's not like we never got to see the, the intended version. This is a self-financed, no-budget movie that Coppola made not that long ago. Yeah. So I assume the version that I saw originally is the version that he wanted to make. Like, who's he answering to with this? That's... And so why do you need to be like, no, no, here's the, this is the authentic cut. Is That's that, what bothers why me. Why did you do that in a cut the, 10 years ago? Really? That's it, what bothers me the most about this title, the authentic. Like what, that, those words don't need to be there. They don't need to be there. And what does it mean? Yeah. What, how is the other one inauthentic? This almost that, it almost makes me feel the way I feel, the way a lot of uh, nerds feel at first, justifiably, and then uh, like dial it back there, dude. With <laughs> George Lucas doing the special editions of the Star Wars movies, yes. where it's not just like. I'm doing a new version of the movie. I'm adding in some stuff. Oh, and by the way, that first version, shit. that shit, <laughs> I, I never meant to do that. <laughs> I never wanted to do that. And I never want you to see it again. <laughs> it is it is interesting thinking about, I think since this is the last you know, official couple, it's good to kind of maybe go into this idea of like, he has got. He is one of the more director, director's cut making fools. You know, like him and like Ridley Scott are kind of like top, top two. I can't think of any other than those guys, of going back, and redoing a thing. And it's just funny because George Lucas has always, kind of been grouped into that too. George Lucas has made way fewer movies, and he only. I mean, I guess he did that with all of his little movies. He did, but. It's funny because Coppola oftentimes expresses disappointment in what George Lucas has become. But in many ways, they're very similar in this... I guess they're just never happy with their with the movies they make. And they're forever just like... You know, like the technology makes it so that I can always be working on this. And now, But it doesn't feel like, oh, I have a new idea. It feels like I'm dissatisfied with the original and I need to figure out a way to make it better. I need to fix it. It's like only Coppola would be obsessed with Twixt and 10 years later be like, no, no, I need to, I need to change it. I need to – and I was hoping, going, knowing, hurrying about his weird editing, live editing idea he had and all the footage he thought, shot, I was hoping this was going to be like one of those director's cuts where it's a whole different movie, you know, where they had so much footage they just made a different thing. Like they, I'm trying to think of an example of one like that. There's a movie I'm trying to remember. Where it's like they shot so well. I guess that's what the Caligula, every version of Caligula that Tinto Brass mm-hmm. has not signed on to, which is literally every version. He's now he's disowned all of them. That he shot like some insane amount of footage, like ninety hours. And so there's like the version that came out on DVD there's called the, the director's cut, which wasn't. There's the Alan Smithy version of David Lynch's Dune, yeah, which is like three. I started to watch it because I thought, oh, this is the longer version. It's like three hours or more. So this must be the the director's cut. No. <laughs> and I put it on and the very first thing it's an Alan Smithy movie. Yeah. And it starts out with like the you know, the legend of Dune and the history and all that. And it's like production uh, sketches, like storyboards. And they just put in the beginning to explain yeah, the plot. With a narration to like, yeah, pad it out and like make it more like the like the novel. Well there are David Lynn on the Twin Peaks Fair Walk Me Criterion. There's a thing called the missing pieces. It's like a 90-minute thing, and it really is because he shot so much stuff. And a lot of stuff that was actually funny and a lot of stuff featuring the characters from the show that weren't – because the movie, the original version, 
the, the director's cut is just about Laura Palmer and there's very little about any other character. But he shot all this other stuff and instead of releasing a three and a half hour movie, he has this 90 minute of all new material, but it works as a movie. Like the logic works and you can kind of watch it and it sort of makes sense as like this weird little separate movie. And uh, he did that a few times. He does that with all his deleted scenes. Like Inland Empire's got something also on there as does Blue Velvet. But I was hoping that's what Betwixt was like, oh, this is going to be like a whole new, you know, all the different takes and knowing that there's all these Val Kilmer and Bruce Dern riffing things. Like it's going to be a whole new movie. And it was just basically the same movie but not as good. <laughs> Which is exactly what it's the most same. of the Coppola director's cuts feel like. Like I'm trying to think of the one that the one that I actually really like. I like because the first one was the Godfather, where he put the two together and made like the complete the saga, the saga, which I think is great, and I think that makes sense because a lot of that's from the book. He had wanted to do some of that stuff of the young Vito, but they didn't have the budget at the time. So finally, here's this big movie, and it totally works, and it's great. And that movie is such a sweeping, you know, generations told story that it works. And then you get the Apocalypse Now Redux, which I totally think is great because you get to see all the stuff he cut out. Again, it just makes this big kind of crazy movie even bigger and crazier. I still prefer the regular version, but it's fun to see the plantation and kind of build on these themes. But then after that, I feel I don't care for any of the other. Well, that's not true. The Outsiders is good because I really like a lot of people don't like that one, but that changing the music and changing the tone completely makes it a totally different movie that I think works better and fits more with Rumblefish. But then you start to get into like once you get into Blu-ray era director's cuts of Coppola, like the final cut Apocalypse Now, which it's, is totally pointless. And what is the um, point of it? It's and, Redux, it, but he took out... He left in the French plantation scene, but he took out the scene with uh, the soldiers uh, hooking up with the Playboy bunnies. Yeah, because that changes it more or something. And then you get the Cotton Club director's cut, which sucks. It just doesn't work. It's terrible. Godfather 3, which is totally pointless and stupid. And again, like the first one is great. That's part three, the original, I really like, even though a lot of people don't. And the director's cut does not improve on it. It makes it worse. And then finally this one, which feels totally the most pointless because this, out of all of those movies, is the one that was most his within his control. This was not a studio film, yet he felt the need. So it makes me think, like, is he going to ruin Tetro? Is he going to go yeah. out and do different this? Leave it be. Like, he is so much like George Lucas where he can't move on. He's got to keep tinkering with this stuff and like be more like your other pals be like Scorsese he has one director's cut right I think New York New York is the only one I can think of right where he was like the studio made me take 30 minutes out and here's the 30 minutes that's it I don't think there's any other Scorsese and Spielberg one time tried to do that shit with E.T. and everyone was like what are you doing he's like you're right I'm so sorry he did that with uh, <laughs> that was, Spielberg also did that with that, Close Encounter oh and Close Encounter but those are good and again that's like they, the studio I think changed or like made him not or did he go well, back he and took, make new stuff because it's got him in the spaceship yeah there was the theatrical and then there was the extended cut and then the director's cut the extended cut was the studio saying this is a huge movie. We want to re-release in theaters, but we need a reason to. Let's add in the footage 
of him in the spaceship. That which he, they had shot. Which they had shot, and it, Spielberg decided not to it, use, okay. to leave it as a mystery. Uh, and then studio put it back in to sell it as a, an extended version, cut re-release. Yeah. And then for the final cut, Spielberg took that stuff out, but left in some more of the uh, uh, people scenes yeah. in it. But he doesn't go back often. Like him and Scorsese are kind of more. We did it. We're done. We're moving on. Yeah. Whereas Coppola and his pal George, they're just so obsessed with their their past and what they've done. And I think that this means so. Like ending betwixt in the dream with Poe saying that line, it's like a a more emotional, right? Uh, it means something because we've seen the movie before. Yeah. And because we've spent this much time with Coppola, and we know that this is surprisingly a personal film. <clears throat> yeah. And it's like with uh, Godfather 3, knowing everything about the Godfather and Coppola's intentions for the Godfather and the character of Michael Corleone, and he has to make people understand that Michael Corleone's not good. <laughs> you know, he uh, has to like live his life and uh, regret and misery seeing godfather like i understand his ending of that in the context in like the wider context of coppola but as just a film on its own it's unnecessary at best <laughs> and i think it makes this less it's like yeah more dreamy more art housey but also it's less of a horror movie which is what makes Twix so fun, which is what makes me want to talk uh, to people about it and to recommend it to people. I, mean, I didn't hate Betwixt, though it gets a bit perplexing <laughs> to stick with uh, words with X in them. It gets a bit perplexing <laughs> at the end. So I would want to recommend people watch Twixt. I think Betwixt is the only uh, version out there to stream, but Twixt is still out there on DVD if you want to, you know track that down i recommend it yeah it's great so we did it we did coppola yeah so what what did you learn aj what, what <laughs> now it's time for your test what the i end? feel like the main thing that i got out of this and i've and this is i know it's redundant because i've said it before and reiterate it but like i was just surprised at how good and interesting most of all of it was like because i always assumed that there was a part where he drops off and he never comes back and it's not worth watching once because that's kind of how – that's sort of the story that I think critics say or film historians even kind of stick with of like he is the he is the person that we should look to as a warning of why when you fly too close to the sun and then you try to build your own studio and you just fall so hard. And then this is why – like Tarantino often cites it as like yeah. this is why you should only make this many movies. You want to be like Coppola. You want to end up like this guy out of touch – Making this nonsense for years and years. Yeah, and that's why be, Tarantino is used long. to be so great, and now he's not. And I feel like it goes up and down his whole life. I feel it's like no, it's like he has always made movies that aren't great, and has always made movies that are great. And uh, I was just surprised at how many post apocalypse. Now I really, really liked a lot, like The Outsiders, like Rumblefish, like The Rainmaker, like Bram Stoker's Dracula, like Tetro, like Twixt. It's like these are some really, really good movies uh, that are worth watching and that are just as interesting as The Conversation and The Godfather and Apocalypse, because it's all by the same guy. He just happened to be really, really lucky 
in the 70s to get that much money to make these crazy things or to be able to kind of work, know how to navigate through the studio system to make big movies that also were very different and interesting. And I feel like his story isn't over yet. We are going to come back with Megalopolis, and that is seems like an insane big swing. It may not work, but he's putting like $100 million of that wine money that we spent <laughs> to this movie. We may be listed as producers from all the wine we bought. And just make, again, another big movie that may not be liked, that may not play beyond film festivals, but he's always trying to do something interesting. He's always... That he's kind of forever the, the the experimental filmmaker. Even though he made it big and won Oscars, he's still always trying to find some new way to tell a movie. Whereas other older filmmakers, I think, get really comfortable and don't try to do different things and just kind of repeat themselves and get really boring. Like he could have cashed in and making gangster movies or trying to do other Godfather type thing. He could have been some bore like that, but he didn't do that. Or he could have just been like, I don't need to make movies anymore. I made the Godfather. I have wine money. But he keeps making these weird little things. And it's exciting to see something like a twixt, which I'm kind of sad it's not his last movie. So I think it would have been a great final movie. But maybe Megalopolis will be a great other movie. Yeah, I'm. I'm interested. I'm interested in watching Megalopolis. Having watched these, uh, all the Coppola movies, but especially these last three, you know, indie auteur, uh, art house movies, where he's trying stuff with going going big and heavy with themes in Youth Without Youth, or like small and personal in Tetro, or like you know, fun and surreal in Twixt. Um, interested to see what uh what he would do in megalopolis because i feel like i think even when he has a big budget it's he still has that uh those roger corman low budget roots <laughs> you know? it's gonna look it's 100 million is gonna look like 200 million. which makes it which makes yeah. it inventive yeah um, always inventive always trying to do a new thing and I hope, too, it kind of still is like the effects of this, but just $100 million worth of yeah. sort of like... <laughs> that's what I love so much about like the new Twin Peaks, is it like it still has this sort of 90s video art aesthetic to it, even though it could have looked a lot fancier in the effects department, but clearly this is what David Lynch likes, is weird, kind of not real-looking video art. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm hoping that Megalopolis kind of maybe looks like 2010 yeah. CGI. Yeah, I guess my, my biggest uh, surprises were the movies I hadn't even thought about a whole lot, like Rumblefish and The Rainmaker mm-hmm. and Tetro. Mm-hmm. Those ones, those movies are great. Really good. And Really, I, really good. I think people should see those if you haven't seen them or if you haven't seen them in a while. And I think people should talk about them as much as uh, his higher profile stuff i agree yeah yeah good Good. we did it i can't believe it that we we did season two it's done it feels weird to be we the world has changed so much since we started season it has there's been a there was a pandemic there was a pandemic (laughs) uh which is over i guess no but uh I guess uh, should we say what season three is? Should we should we talk about it or? I suppose so. All right. So we've been drinking this wine, 
and a wine, and we bought a wine, you know, in celebration of ending Francis. But at the same time, it's a way to to kind of we're breaking the the champagne bottle on the on the boat because we're launching a new thing. And so this may seem obvious, but I feel like we felt like this actually built upon what we have. But we are going to do Sophia Coppola for season three, which may seem like a boring logical step, but I feel like we've done the groundwork of her early as an actress and, and kind of what she's got from her family and went off to do her own thing. And why not? Why not do Sophia? Like, why not continue with this Coppola tradition of like family making film? Yeah, I wanted to uh, I wanted to cover Sofia Coppola's films, but I thought, yeah, it was it was too obvious doing it right <laughs> after right after Francis Ford Coppola. So I thought we should do an- another director first, and then go back to Sofia. But we're so but, slow; <laughs> we would never get to take forever. Yeah, but we are so slow, and it just once we got into like learning that she wrote. Life, co-wrote Life Without Zoe and yeah her early work as, as an actress in his movies it just it feels like a, like a natural a natural segue and she's so different as a filmmaker than Francis that I feel like it's we can do it yeah. and because she is being talked about a lot now with Priscilla being this sort of movie that just came out of all the film festivals so it just made sense. And maybe I'm being optimistic, but I think we can do it in a year and a half. Because she doesn't have that many movies. So I feel we can start and go all the way through. And this time next year, who knows, maybe we'll be doing, you know, The Beguiled by yeah. <laughs> October of 2024. <laughs> but yeah, that's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm very excited. The first episode will hopefully come out next month. If not, within two months. Depends on our holiday life schedules. And what are we drinking? We don't quite know yet. We, we discussed maybe doing the drinks that the characters drink because those movies have many people drinking things in it. But there's also plenty of Sophia brand sparkling wines that Coppola put, that Francis, her dad, puts out. So, yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I haven't seen her stuff since they came out. So I haven't seen... Virgin Suicides or Lost in Translation since the theater when they came out a long time ago. So it'll be fun to revisit and fun to watch them all in order and kind of see her grow as a filmmaker and become, you know, this great filmmaker of the 21st century. Yeah, I'm I'm a big, big fan of Sofia Coppola. I've mentioned that before. So I'm always willing, always excited to <laughs> talk about Sofia Coppola's movies. So... Uh, yeah, and I've, I've, we've got a good momentum built up. And just so I can get a plug and another chance to try to get some free wine, we are enjoying the Sofia Blanc de Blanc Francis Coppola wine. It is sparkling, it is white, it is dry, it is fantastic. It's good, it's yeah. good. Nice uh, wine, or nice sparkling wine for a nice autumn day, finally, in Texas. <laughs> so... Happy Shocktober, everybody. I hope you can find the original Twix to celebrate your spooky Halloween time. I don't say spooky season. It makes me mad when people say it. We call it Shocktober over here. But, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, watch other Coppola horror movies. Do Dracula. Do Dementia 13. These are fun, fun movies. Uh, We are on um, Instagram. 
No. No? <laughs> I haven't been on there right. forever. We're on there, but nobody runs it. Uh, uh, yeah, same for Twitter. Which, <laughs> or X or whatever the fuck it's yeah, called. Yeah, I just I don't want to deal. And just tell your friends that. about the show and send them a link. Tell hey, your friends like, guys did. <laughs> uh, yeah, like and subscribe to us yeah. on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the other one, Google Podcasts. Uh, we may get up on Amazon Podcasts if I ever remember to do that. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening this far, and we hope you tune in for a, a different Coppola, but a very different uh, style of, of films. Wonderful. Yeah.